0: Josh Porter and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part seven in our series, Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. The question of our formation can be a daunting one when set against the backdrop of modern deconstruction hysteria and a culture that pulls us away from rather than toward the way of Jesus. How can we possibly live this out without some miracle? This is my very first paperback copy of a novella that uh, honestly changed my life. I realize that sounds hyperbolic, but it's true. My mom gave me this when I was uh, 11 or 12 years old. I can't remember exactly. It's called The Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka. And it begins like this. Let me read you the opening line. It, well, wow, just this has all the essays at the beginning to really get you excited. It begins like this, when Gregor Samsa woke up one morning from unsettling dreams, he found himself changed in his bed into a monstrous vermin. Gregor Samsa is this lowly traveling salesman, and he wakes up one morning and finds that he has become an enormous cockroach. I have never read anything like it, not then or now, and God used this little book Unknown and unappreciated in its own time, but since recognized as one of the great works of literature, to awaken a dream of creativity and imagination for the possibility of how writing can be strange, yet moving and grotesque, yet beautiful. It's a story about someone becoming something else in an instant. On the page, it's surreal and disturbing, but really all of us are becoming something else. We wake up one morning and we realize we aren't who we were, for better or for worse. Sometimes we aren't who we wanted to be. And it feels as if it happened in an instant, but really it takes much longer. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Tonight is the final entry in our annual vision series before we begin observing Advent next week. And for weeks, wow, yeah, exactly. As the pastor of Christmas, I approve of and bless that <laughs> Hooten and Holleran. For weeks now we've been talking about what it means to follow Jesus in a world that often feels defined by discord and deconstruction. The world often seems to us as if it's gone insane, but really it's always been like this, and we're following Jesus in it. And this is something that we can do, follow Jesus together. But it is the work of a lifetime. The human condition is a dynamic state. You're always changing. Nothing is static. Everything's falling apart or growing or evolving or shifting in place. Becoming someone else is an inevitability. We are all in the process of becoming someone else. But who? And spiritual formation is not a uniquely Christian concept. It's an inevitability. We're all being shaped all the time by the stories that we believe, by our habits, by our relationships, and by the environment in which we live and function. With no effort on your part whatsoever, whether you like it or not, this is happening for all of us. Why are there innumerable books and articles and YouTube and TikTok videos and TED Talks and podcasts about things like diet or fitness or minimalism or maximalism or sleep rhythm, wake rhythm, daily routine, efficiency, productivity? Because any and every disciplined way of life is counterformation. Healthy diet and exercise habits or productivity habits or rhythms, they don't come naturally. They are not the gravitational force of our time and place. They are upstream efforts. And all of them are based on some kind of value system or on belief, if you like. There are things that we believe are best for us or the world, but the world doesn't just accommodate them by default. So we go against the current of life in the world to do things like eat better or be productive or simplify our lives, whatever it might be. And following Jesus is the ultimate Counterformation. If by simply waking up tomorrow and living, whether you like it or not, you are being shaped by the stories that you believe, by your habits, by your relationships, the environment in which you live and function, then the counterformation of Jesus subverts every category one by one. Rather than the stories we believe, we seek to be formed by teaching, which means sermons or theology, reading, thinking, the scriptures. Rather than our habits, we utilize something called the spiritual disciplines or what we often call the practices, things like silence and solitude and prayer and reading the scriptures and community, fasting, all the way down the list. Rather than the kind of default arbitrary relationships that sort of make their waves into our lives, we choose to live in community. With the people of God. And rather than the influence of our environment, our city, our family, the digital world, all those things, we choose to be formed by the environment of the Holy Spirit. That is how we partner with Jesus to realize the full potential of our metamorphosis from the shape of the old person into the shape of a master apprentice, someone who looks and sounds and thinks and feels and behaves more like Jesus of Nazareth year after year after year of our lives. And notice I use that word partner, someone who partners with the Spirit. In the same way that God is active and involved in our transformation, we play an active, involved role as well. Now, I point that out because we sometimes assume, I think consciously or subconsciously, that we are entirely responsible for our own spiritual formation. Whatever it takes to be like Jesus, it's up to you. And you're probably blowing it. Did you do enough? Did you sin? Now you have to start all over again at the beginning. But that's just not true. Maybe even more people, though, on the other hand, assume that the work of spiritual formation is entirely up to God. You don't do anything. In fact, terms like strive or effort are dirty, unwelcome concepts. We suck, and God just covers us, and that's that. But that's not true either. You can't possibly remodel yourself into the image of Jesus all alone. But God does not zap you into spiritual maturity in an instant when you convert either, There's a tension here. A friend of mine puts it this way. He says, without God, we can't, but without us, God won't. We have a responsibility, and God has a responsibility. So I would argue personally that if you were to attempt to quantify such a thing, it it would not be 50-50, and that's the good news, to be clear. Thankfully, God does the miraculous and beautiful heavy lifting. He does more work than we do you're wondering how I got that. Because in the Bible's paradigm, humanity is what my dad used to call a sad, sorry state. We're not just broken down without God. We are dead. In one passage of prophetic poetry in the Hebrew Scriptures, Isaiah specifically says that even if we try our very, very best, that the best we can do is, I'm sorry, but like a used minstrel rag And yes, if you're wondering, all the most outrageous and offensive art is in the Bible. It's the best. So to be clear, on your very best day, you can't bring yourself back to life. But God can. In the language of the scriptures, God brings dead things to life. He redeems the broken. He heals what was sick and infirm. He restores what was lost. You can't do that, contrary to popular belief which brings us to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Are you guys still with me? You are right? Even after the thing from Isaiah, it's not my fault. It's in the Bible. Would you guys stand with me in reverence and respect for the inspired authoritative scriptures? And let's read from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 17. Paul writes, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. These words are inspired by God. Thanks. Thanks. Go ahead and take a seat. In the 70s, a Princeton philosopher called Harry Frankfurt talked about something that he called first order and second order desires. Now, for Frankfurt, a first order desire is sort of the surface, primal base, often ignoble human want. It's that desire to satisfy cravings with no deeper consideration for the long term overall good of yourself or other people. The New Testament often calls first order desires the flesh, It's your desire to eat garbage or harbor bitterness or to gossip or to lust. A second-order desire, on the other hand, is the desire to have a different desire. Meaning, on a base level without trying, I want to, you know, eat sweets or something. It's chocolate. But I want to not want sugar all the time. Second-order desires contradict the flesh in that we want to want the way of Jesus. We want to want forgiveness and kindness and purity and on down the list. We want to want something better. And however difficult or rare it may be, human beings can and do from time to time override that first dimension of selfish desire in order to prefer and pursue the better thing. So think of incredible stories of things like recovery or battling addiction, remarkable transformations from unhealthy to more healthy, therapy, restoration, forgiveness, reconciliation. Frankfurt argued that the human ability to override first order desires is called second order volition. Second order volition is that ability to exercise your power of will over and against your desire, in other words, to, you know, put the ice cream away or to say I'm sorry when it doesn't come naturally or to release someone in forgiveness whom you'd rather hold captive in bitterness, to turn away from that image that corrupts or to close the laptop when you're all alone or to turn off your phone to be more present to your family. Frankfurt himself put it this way. He wrote, freedom, true freedom, is the freedom to do what one wants to do. Analogously, then, the statement that a person enjoys freedom of the will means that he is free to want what he wants to want. Or more precisely, it means he's free to will that what he wants to will. It is in securing, securing the conformity of his will to his second order volitions, then, that a person exercises freedom of the will. Now, I know that's really wordy, but I think what he's getting at is that actual freedom is not unfettered autonomy to act on every desire and every whim that comes to mind on a given day. The New Testament actually describes that very thing as slavery, not freedom. It is bondage to the flesh. The truer, greater freedom is when a person can act on what they want to want, meaning to act on that desire to be healthy or peaceful or selfless rather than self-serving. Freedom is the ability to want the right thing and then to exercise the will necessary to overcome your shallow based desire and do the better thing. That sounds all well and good, or maybe it even sounds wordy or intellectual, but we already know this. Anyone with a fitness goal or who's learning to play the piano understands that to be the person that they want to be, they will have to surrender part of their autonomy or their ability to do whatever they want, whenever they want, deny themselves in the name of something greater, the person that they want to be. And that kind of thing necessitates something called willpower. But, Willpower is like a muscle. It's a finite resource, and like other muscles, you can wear them out, strain it, exhaust it. And when it comes to just bare naked willpower, most of us are severely out of shape. That's just the world in which we live. We've depleted our entire reserve of willpower by 10 a.m. or something. It may sound silly, but it's true. About every book on the subject of something like efficiency suggests that you should order difficult tasks prior to easy ones because you will run out of gas. This is also why focus and determination tend to come easier in the morning than they do in the evening, or why so many of us make bad decisions late at night or lose our patience or tempers. This means that one aspect of our apprenticeship to Jesus is learning how to exercise the will in order to make it stronger over time. This way, when presented with first-order desires, that based primal desire to gratify the flesh, what scriptures call temptation, we can learn to overcome them more and more day after day, week after week, and year after year. The power to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. To develop said power, we exercise the muscle of our will, so to speak. But here's the problem with that. You cannot influence your will directly. And what I mean by that is that your will is depleted by time or being tired or your emotions, that sort of thing. And then temptation rears its ugly head. You can't simply force more willpower. My therapist used to say to me all the time, willpower is great until it isn't. Meaning you can't force it, but you can influence it. How? Through teaching, practice, and community. It's not rocket science. If you've never done a bench press in your life and your arms are thin and feeble, and you just lay down and try to lift 100 pounds, you will fail and probably hurt yourself in the process. You can't just will yourself to do it. Even with all the determination in the whole world, you will not be able to bench press 100 pounds if you've never tried it. But you can make decisions that will, over time, enable you to become someone who can lift 100 pounds and more and more. You train, you work, you work your way up, you get stronger, and you practice. Think of how Jesus concludes his manifesto on on the kingdom of God, what we often call the Sermon on the Mount. He says, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into what? Practice. Practice. For disciples of Jesus, setting out to train their will Teaching focuses on the mind, practice focuses on the heart, and community focuses on the social sphere or your environment. Teaching subverts the stories that we've been led to believe by our upbringing, by culture, in our minds presenting a new vision of what it means to live and thrive as a human being, filling your mind up with theology, the scriptures, the things of God. And then through practice, specifically through what we call the spiritual disciplines, and putting them all together into a rule of life, we reorient the desires of the heart, gradually learning to love and long for this vision in our minds more than we love or long for, things like porn or food or gossip or whatever destructive thing of the flesh. Community then subverts the influences in our lives by surrounding us with vulnerability and accountability, other men and women committed to the way of Jesus, and who will hold us accountable to the way of Jesus, exposing our weaknesses and encouraging us forward in discipleship, calling us up to a better way. So in that moment of temptation, you can't just say, we'll be stronger, but Long before the moment of temptation arrives, you can fill your mind with teaching and practice the spiritual disciplines and live in the context of community with accountability and vulnerability. And in doing so, gradually over time, the will becomes stronger. All that is the good news. You ready for the bad news? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Who's ready for the bad news? The bad news is that even with willpower as strong as strong gets even with willpower comparable to 70s and 80s bodybuilding physique of the Austrian oak um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, seven-time Mr. Olympia champion, even with that, yes, yes, amen, even with that, you still can't live the way of Jesus out all by yourself. Small incremental, and gradually ascending steps in our transformation, like say, you know, reading a psalm first thing in the morning rather than checking your social media feed first thing in the morning. That stuff you can do with willpower alone. You can find a way to just, in and of yourself, make a decision for a psalm rather than a phone. But as soon as you break the surface you will uncover the un- ingrained destructive patterns that extend backward all the way into your childhood, your family of origin, your personality, your own unique brokenness, patterns of anger or perfectionism or abandonment, trauma and eating disorder, anxiety, depression, addiction, and willpower all by itself will eventually sparkle and fade and fail. And it won't be because willpower is itself flawed or is inherently weak or worthless. It could be really strong and really good. And it is absolutely necessary for our transformation. The problem is that, in and of itself, it just isn't good enough. It's great until it isn't. And that's where something that the New Testament authors call grace enters the picture. And by grace, I don't mean that God lets you off the hook for your failure. By grace, I mean an empowering to be who God has called us to be and what God has called us to do—that comes not from our will, but as a gift of grace from God Himself. All that to say, to actually pull this off, we need the Holy Spirit, and that's why we read Second Corinthians three this evening. It's a text about how we get access to the power of the Holy Spirit in order to be transformed. Now, before we end, let me show you this weird, obscure short story from Exodus. Keep your bookmark here in Second Corinthians. And turn backward to Exodus chapter 34. Second book in the Old Testament. It's easy enough to get there. Are you guys still with me? You got a few minutes? Great. Thank you. Let's read Exodus chapter 34, beginning with verse 29. The story goes, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant. They were afraid to come near him, but Moses called them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Now, in this story, Moses enters the tabernacle. He finds himself face to face with the glory of God, which is another way of saying the presence of God. It's on the mountain, in the tabernacle, in the temple, or what Jesus will later refer to as the Holy Spirit afterward, Moses is left with something of a glow. In this case, it's a literal glow, and he has to wear a veil over his face to diffuse it so that it doesn't freak everybody out. But notice this, no one else enjoys access to this glory, to the presence of God. Remember that for just a second from now. Okay, now flip back to 2 Corinthians 3 and work through the text one more time. Verse 17, Paul writes, Now, the Lord is the Spirit. Ordinarily, when Paul says Lord, he does so in reference to Jesus of Nazareth. But here, he clearly means the Spirit because he says so. So that's a dead giveaway. The Spirit is the empowering presence of God, God, the glory of God. And he goes on to say, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Now, in context, Paul is juxtaposing the Spirit-given freedom to the outward oppression of Israel at the time of writing. He goes on in verse 18. And we all who with unveiled faces, meaning unlike Moses, we all have access to God's glory or presence through the Holy Spirit. He says, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, The Greek word for contemplate here refers to staring into a mirror. The idea is to stare deeply into the Lord's glory, live in relationship with the Spirit of God. And then what happens? Continue reading verse 18. We are being transformed. The Greek word there is metamorpho, where we get the English word metamorphosis, not just a tweak, not just a a little change to your personality here and there. It is a profound, holistic transformation of everything you are into what? Keep reading. Transformed into his image. So we're becoming like Jesus with ever increasing glory, meaning it's a little bit at a time. Over time, we resemble Jesus. It doesn't happen all at once, but it keeps happening, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, Gordon Fee, who's one of the top Pentecostal scholars in the world, he writes about this text that we've just read like this. He says, Through Christ and by the Spirit, we are being transformed so as to bear the likeness for which we were intended at the beginning. One takes the Spirit lightly in Pauline theology and Christian experience at great risk, for herein lies the glory that by the Spirit, We not only come to know God, but come to live in his presence in such a way as constantly to be renewed into God's image. What he's getting at is that as we continue in relationship with the Holy Spirit, we are being at the same time transformed. Meaning, when you spend time with God's presence in prayer, when you come to the gathering and you sing and worship and you acknowledge the presence of God all around us, when you respond in the gathering to prophetic words, words of wisdom and knowledge, when you acknowledge the Spirit, you are being transformed by the Spirit of God in the same way. Now, that kind of metamorphosis tends to happen in one of two ways. Breakthrough and process. Breakthrough moments are those rare, typically unplanned, unique, unexpected instances in time when God dramatically accelerates your transformation like that. Now, ordinarily, transformation is a slow, difficult process, like inching forward one one small step at a time. But in a breakthrough moment, you're touched by the Holy Spirit, and we leap forward in growth and maturity typically on the heels of something like healing or deliverance or the Spirit doing some kind of deep restorative work on trauma or wounding or sin. It's not a leap from beginning to end, so you don't arrive completely in a breakthrough moment, but it is uncharacteristically dramatic and drastic nonetheless. It's when what often requires years of teaching and practice and community is accomplished in a moment through prayer and the presence of God's Spirit. Uh, And there's stories of this all throughout the Scriptures. I think of the story of Paul, who's on the road to Damascus, gets knocked off his horse, he encounters Jesus, and he's forever changed into a completely different person like that. Or Peter, on the day of Pentecost, I've experienced moments like these in my own life, two in particular that I can think of through intense sessions of inner healing prayer, and even one time all alone by myself in a morning quiet time just looking out a window in the morning. This is why we call people to respond here in the gathering week in and week out, and why response in that moment can be so unique. Breakthrough moments, to be clear, are not the norm, but they do happen. I've experienced them myself. I've seen them in the lives of my friends and family and hung around long enough to verify their lasting effects. I've witnessed them in the presence of strangers. But again, breakthrough moments are relatively rare. One reason could be our consistent lack of faith and expectation, quite frankly. We don't expect breakthrough moments to happen. In fact, me, even though I've seen them and experienced myself personally that they do happen, I don't expect them to happen. And God is kind enough and good enough that he'll still do it, but our faith can stifle that possible breakthrough, our lack of faith, rather. It also could be that we operate in churches and communities that are not marked by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we come not expecting the Spirit to do anything at all and then leave unsurprised that he doesn't. Or it could be that we quench the spirit of God by refusing to respond, or through something like unrepentant sin. But I would argue that even though those can all be possibilities, and they probably all are reasons that breakthrough moments don't happen that much, the the more likely explanation could be that some character traits can only be forged in the crucible of everyday life, the rhythm, routine, even mundane unfolding of self-discipline and repentance day after day, year after year of your discipleship to Jesus. God won't just fast forward all of our formation. Most of it takes a lifetime and longer. Eugene Peterson, he famously described all of spiritual formation as long obedience in the same direction. Often when we tell stories about Holy Spirit breakthrough. We're talking about freedom, the same language that Paul used in 2 Corinthians. Someone encounters the Spirit and they're set free from a wound of the past, an addiction, a misconception about their own identity. Both instances of breakthrough moments in my own life have been those kinds of things. We tell stories about deep character change far less often. I was patient, or rather, I was impatient, volatile, short tempered, and then after one profound moment in God's presence, I became patient. And hear me, that isn't impossible, but in my experience, it's rare. The type of maturity to change someone from something like impatient to patient is more often the byproduct of process. And that's a problem for us because we are, how do I put this delicately, uh, we have the patience of goldfish. Goldfish. Irritable goldfish, irritable, tired goldfish, stressed out after a long day at the office, Irritable, tired, stressed out goldfish who would rather look at screens than spend time with God. So, you know, we read our Bible for 10 minutes in the morning for a week, and then we wonder why the heck our lives haven't changed yet. And so, I quit. This sucks. Process moments are those tens of thousands of ordinary, routine, disciplined, and usually unspectacular moments in which we are slowly being changed by practicing the way of Jesus again and again and again. Again. Think back to a few weeks ago when we talked about the way Jesus described this sort of ongoing faithfulness like abiding in the vine. I'm gonna read it over you guys again. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. My father's the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me, and my words or my teaching, my way of life remains in you. Ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So Jesus' primary metaphor, his word picture for what it means to transform and bear fruit and be more like Jesus over time is of a slow-growing plant. Later in the New Testament, Paul will write in Galatians 5, So I say, walk by the Spirit. And if you do that, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other. So listen, listen to this. You are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The fruit of the Spirit, the outgrowth of life with the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to King Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Now, don't read that very famous Fruits of the Spirit list presented here as a list of behaviors, as in the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, so go behave accordingly, be loving, be joyful. This is a portrait of the inner disposition of a woman or a man who is like Jesus. The fruits aren't behaviors, nor are they a list of commands. As in, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, so be more loving, be more joyful. In fact, there's only one command in the entire passage, and it's this, walk by the Spirit. You cannot simply clench your fists and say, let's do this, be more loving, and then be more loving. But you can continue in ongoing faithfulness in the same direction so that you are shaped into a loving person. You wake up early, you read the scriptures, you pray, you rest, you live in community and on down the list. By practicing the way of Jesus, you are gaining access to life in and with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit's character begins to blossom in our person like fruit on a tree. Meaning it's not a list of behaviors, it's not a list of commands, it is the natural outgrowth of life with the Spirit of God. Dallas Willard wrote that, The disciplines, meaning the practices, the things that we do as Jesus taught and commanded, are activities of mind and body purposefully undertaken to bring our personality and total being into effective cooperation with the divine order. They enable us more and more to live in a power that is, strictly speaking, beyond us, deriving from the spiritual realm itself as we yield ourselves to God as those that are alive from the dead and are members as instruments of righteousness unto God, as Romans 6.13 puts it. Or as science fiction novelist Frank Herbert writes, seek freedom and become captive of your desires. Seek discipline and find your liberty. So there's breakthrough and there's process. And we need both. But all of that happens over time. Now, notice Paul writes that we are being transformed, not that we were already and it's done. In Greek, the word is in the indicative, meaning it's an ongoing process. It's not a one-time event. The church mothers and fathers used to write that we are justified in a moment, sanctified over a lifetime. The idea is that we can be brought into relationship with the Father in a single instant, but that becoming like the Father will take the rest of our lives. In their book, The Relational Soul, James Cofield and Richard Plass write, the truth about significant soul transformation is this. Change is possible, but it is harder than we want and takes longer than we expect. Which is a hard pill to swallow in the frenetic pace of our fast fix culture. There is no spiritual gastric bypass, no smartphone app, no Amazon Prime. No one skips the line. There's a reason Jesus uses the metaphor of a vine on a tree. Character is grown slowly, one inch at a time, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decades into the future. And it isn't just that it takes time. It takes a lot of time. The process is involved and labor intensive. And hear me on this. The rate at which you progress in your transformation depends on the amount of time you dedicate to your spiritual life, to teaching, to practice, to community, which is a sobering thing, I think, for many of us to remember. So for many of us, that means slowing down, saying no to more so that we can accommodate a rule of life, the things of Jesus, cutting things out so that we can invite the practices into our lives in a meaningful, structured, self-disciplined way. For others of us, it means waking up and getting to work, being less passive, less stagnated in old patterns, less content and complacent with our own brokenness and trauma, getting into counseling or therapy, rejuvenating our lives, stepping into community, being vulnerable, being held accountable by other people, waking up and getting to work. Either way, it takes time. So you are allowed to have patience with yourself, with God, and with the process itself. It happens over time, and it happens through suffering or the hard knocks of life, through the trials and tribulations of the human experience. In all that, and in other words, discipleship is a journey. Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. The last Tuesday, I had this book, Death of Deconstruction, finally come out into the world. And the book's subtitle, and the name of this series, Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. So I began having conversations with people about the book. And a lot of people have asked me what I meant by that line, faithfulness as an act of rebellion. And people seem to receive it in one of two ways you know, the angry, triggered deconstructionists online are accusing me of being lame and out of touch, which is funny, as if I'm trying to dress up Christianity by making it sound cool and punk rock. And on the other hand, some stable Christians have gently pointed out, and understandably so, isn't rebellion a bad thing? And so I've been explaining that what I mean by that title of the book and the title of this series is a couple of things. First, following Jesus faithfully and consistently will require every single one of us, to defy social and cultural expectations by, uh, or be they the expectations of American evangelicalism or a political party or modern progressivism and its political party, to faithfully and consistently live out the teachings of Jesus will put you at odds with the status quo, whatever the status quo is for you. And so that thing that Eugene Peterson called long obedience in the same direction becomes inevitably rebellion. But it's more than that. Faithfulness is a rebellion against a broken world, against our own brokenness. It's revolt against my own base desire, against the self. Allegiance to Jesus, unwavering resilient faithfulness means saying yes to a master And saying no to all that contradicts his truth and his way, regardless of the outcome. And I don't say that to sound cool or to sell anything or to bum anyone out or to scare anyone away. These are simply the stakes. As Jesus said, come, die, and follow him. And the journey of faithfulness is long and it's difficult. And so we need each other. So to conclude this year's vision series, I want to remind everyone, remind myself that that is what we're here to do. To follow Jesus together. We are here to walk with one another in the journey of discipleship. We're here for accountability and vulnerability and to invite one another up and out of the stagnation and mire of life in the world as it is and to something better. We are here to surrender part of our own autonomy, to sacrifice in the name of something greater for the sake of one another and the world and our own souls. And I am beyond caring about accusations of rigidity or that the way of Jesus sounds too edgy or not edgy enough. It is, as it has been for 2,000 years and longer, an invitation to come and die and live. Live life to the full in the language of Jesus, the life that is truly life through the crucible of self-sacrificial love. And you're invited. On this journey, we walk together with God and with one another. We don't change on our own. You can certainly make adjustments on your own, but you will not be transformed. We can get tips and techniques from books or podcasts or TED Talks, but for transformation, you need the Holy Spirit and the family of God with all its accountability and vulnerability, with all its messiness and imperfections. And we live in relationship with the Holy Spirit, long obedience in the same direction through the highs and lows of life, and we will be transformed